Hello. Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Eleven, and this is a comics podcast. This is a comics podcast for people who get really excited when writers they love take on characters they love, so much so that they can't figure out a humorous and self-referential episode opening. That's right. Award-winning comics writer and now RPG designer and sometime DJ, Kieran Gillen, returns to the podcast. He's been on here before to talk about Young Avengers, Phonogram, which still holds the Elon 11 Award for the most Elon 11 comic ever written, The Wicked and the Divine, and most recently to talk about Die, Peter Cannon Thunderbolt, and The Eternals, who he compared to the Supremes. It was awesome. You should go listen to those episodes. And today, he joins me to talk about his return to the world of the X-Men in the new series, Immortal X-Men. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. I was like, that, that enormous list makes me remember, I've been on here a lot, A, and B, oh my God, we're so old. <laughs> so- yeah, for real. <laughs> well, I feel very lucky. I'm really glad that you made time for this because I know you have a great new exciting addition in your family. So thanks yeah. for coming back. It's a real pleasure to be here. And it's like, it's, it's delightful. As in like kind of, People listening, I, I've just had a, a child's entered our house. Uh, so I have like, <laughs> I've just sort of inched back from the parental leave. So I'm in this position now where I'm kind of, I, I don't think I'm full work yet, but I'm still sort of writing scripts now and doing childcare. So there's not much other than childcare and writing at the moment. So this is a blessed break uh, and a reminder that I can speak to humans and not just sing. So I spend most of my time just singing at the child. That's my main oh, yeah. thing. It's pretty impressive. That's awesome. What is your favorite song to uh, sing to her, to sing to the child, especially if it's like not from the standard canon of songs one sings to a child? I saw any. I've changed lyrics to literally anything. But I tell you, the shocking thing is, it's Silent Night. I just can't stop singing Silent Night here because it oh. absolutely works. Uh, I think it's straight. Huh. I, I still haven't looked up all the lyrics, so I keep on forgetting the middle bit. Uh, but like, it really <laughs> genuinely puts it to sleep. If I was going to choose the iconic song of this period, it's me singing uh, Solemn Night, and, it, and it's slightly out of my vocal. You know, there's bits which are, you can hear me str- straining, which I, I don't know. Right. She seems very into it, though. So, uh, yeah. She, she doesn't know that you're, you know, going to the edges of your, your range. It's just... Yeah. Sorry, That's really been, sweet. There has been some full phonogram stuff where rec- the first time my records played, I thought, it's, anyway, uh, honey, this is the specials. The specials, <laughs> were, like, you know, they were, you know, they're they taking like a two-tone, you know, which is a... That's kind of Scarlet Revival. This is about Coventry and the British working life in the in the early 80s, et cetera, et cetera. So, so thankful <laughs> that you were raising a generation of children who I won't have to yell out on Twitter about them saying flippant things about ska based on their illusion that American third wave is the entire genre. So thank you for yeah. doing yes, your we, service. I will. And <laughs> you know, inevitably, there were a, a rebellion against that. And she'll um, only listening to the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones or something. But, you know, that's a risk we'll have to take. <laughs> Yes, well, it'll happen when the time comes. Yes, I um, have thought about adding yelling at you about Ska on the internet to my Twitter bio at this point because it just comes up so often. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's it's sad. Um, so uh, it, it would be easy to just talk about music the whole time. Although I, I will say that um, our first inkling of what was to come with the X-Men was you releasing an Immortal X-Men playlist. Uh, featuring 1919 by John Cale, which is a stunning piece of music, and in- including many other very interesting surprises. Um, for folks who haven't checked out the playlist, it's a Spotify list, and I recommend you do so. But I- I'm wondering, Kieran, 1919 is when this issue starts, and it's the first song. Is it generally to be taken as a, a playlist that moves through the series as you see it laid out? Yes and no. Uh, mainly, n- partially yes, but mainly no. In that it's, okay. it's it's very much a working playlist, as in, oh, I'm still adding stuff to it. 
uh, and like tweaking and moving stuff around. Um, and it's normally when a series is over, you get the kind of like, oh, this is definitive order. But at the same time, oh no, there's definitely some kind of structure there. Like there's certain, um, it's kind of stuff at the end, probably stuff at the end and stuff right at the beginning. You see, like you say, it starts with Paris 19. It's exactly the same as the comic. Uh, and yep. you know, there's some allusions to that record in that first scene when you read the whole thing. And then uh, the next song is, it's the, it's the knife, isn't it? It's the coloring of pigeons. No, it's Utopia. Uh, actually, let me mm-hmm. just click. I've got my computer here. I'm about to open it myself. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit more like I set up the, there's a bit of like setting yeah, up some Utopia of the themes. Yeah. And it's also, mm-hmm. it, part of it's, it's listenable and it's also a selection of the moves. Um, it's weird, like of all flexmen, that's the sort of mood I've sort of ended up in. And there's definitely some other stuff I want to add. It's kind of vaguely apocalyptically rock, uh, emergent stuff. Stuff I imagine that was played by adults in the 1980s in cool dinner parties, which I wouldn't get to go to. Uh, <laughs> and uh, bit, random bits and bits of classical music. Uh, yeah. Really dep- just depressed stuff. Weird cover versions about the future. I mean, um, if I had to choose a single track to, to actually get the mood of what I think my immortal is going for, it's The Colour of Pigeons, which is a, a, co- a collaboration uh, between The Knife, Empty Sims, and Planet Rock. And it was, uh, uh, if people don't know it, it's basically the whole thing was a musical performance based around Darwin. So oh. the colouring of pigeons is referring to, of course, the changing of the colouring of pigeons in evolutionary sense. And it's a wonderful piece of music because, A, obviously it's about evolution. It's about change. It's about, you know, Sinister's one of the main characters and there's a Darwin mm-hmm. aspect there. And also, specifically, it sounds like this weirdly glacial, perfect society. It's something... You know, that bit in the fifth element where the opera singer sings and they kind of do some really fun stuff musically there. Um, it's mm-hmm. a little bit like that. It's, a, it's, some, it's the closest I can imagine mutant culture sounding like, the colouring of pigeons. So it's, that's, that's Krakoa in some ways. That's uh, great. Yeah. Um, and it's not, for, for better or worse, because the, the colouring of pigeons is not a comforting record. Like that's definitely, I'm kind of interested in the push and pull of Krakoa. Um, mm-hmm. And that, especially the, I mean, the Quiet Council, it's, you know, it's, it's elevated. It's not Krakoa in life, it's Krakoa in politics. So like, there's something about that. Imagine if you walk into Gakoa, I think that's, or at least you walk into the Quiet Council, the Colouring of Pigeons will be playing. If you're down on the beach, it's going to be very different. Um, I've got another playlist mm-hmm. called Immortal X-Men After Dark, because uh, I deliberately <laughs> removed all the, anything that was really danceable and fun from the playlist, because it, it broke the mood. Uh, mm. Like, so I, I, if there's ever a more silly rats, I mean, you've read the first issue. It's, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not, not fun, <laughs> but at the same oh, time, yes. like there, there's a, sugar over a cyanide dish in that way. That definitely carries a lot of foreboding, but also a lot of humor because you're writing from the POV of Sinister for almost the entire issue. And um, that's always going to be funny in your hands. I, I love that you're in, your reinvention of Sinister is one of those things that has carried over into the age of Hoxpox. Um, that has, it was a, a, a modern contemporary reimagining of a character that has continued into this reimagined, reimagined modern series, just undoubtedly so. And I think you've, you've, you've sort of defined in the, your earlier series, like what Sinister is now for like the current X-Men world. That's, that's pretty cool, right? <laughs> it's, it's amazing when something sticks. I mean, I don't mean that, that, that sounds sarcastic, but you know, I really like when you're yeah. with the hire, you can only really tell if your peers like what you've done if they use it. And sometimes it's yeah. not even then. It's like, you know, if they've been paying attention. So when I first saw Jonathan use, uh, it's sinister in Secret Wars. That was kind of like, oh, Jonathan likes my stuff. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and it, it was a complete a surprise to me as anyone. Um, and it's been a delight, you know, it's kind of, especially when I sat down and did the reinvention of Sinister back in my run, it was very much, this character isn't quite working. Like, how can we make him work? And like, and I threw a lot of ideas at the page. 
and they've people have got honed in on the best one and now i get to pick up on this sinister you know decade on because that's kind of the fun thing of it that i'm not just going back to what i wrote i'm also you know i'm very much yes handing what they what other people have written mm-hmm. um at the same time also still going okay i've got i see aspects of sinister i want to bring to the fore again uh, or like because i think it's been a bit fun to be around like and it, it's still fun to be around now but i want to really mm-hmm. kind of dig back oh no he's a villain you know and he's like he's a proper villain in that kind of way and in which case it becomes especially in this first issue you say oh no he's complete him being funny is manipulating people you know there's a <laughs> that's just because mm-hmm. you know and there's a lot more of that in terms of likability as a weapon and sinister you know yeah. as, essentially has realized being a little bit fun and you know you know he's more fun to be with that it's a joke at least they, there's something people say in british oh at least they buy their round at the bar you know, they'll say that about somebody. And that means the basic level of these, you know, all the boy around at the bar, that says nothing. That says the boy a few drinks. You know, it doesn't say anything about what's going on inside them. So I wanted the sinisterness mm-hmm. of sinister to come back beneath it. I don't know. I've got a lot of ideas. You know me. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I I don't think we ever got to really, I don't think you and I have ever really spoken about X-Men at length before. I although I, I feel like at some point I made my enthusiasm for the existence of the character unit uh, that you invented <laughs> audible. But when you began reinventing Sinister a decade ago, <laughs> what was it that um, you felt like wasn't working about him that you then were able to transform to the point where now he really is a character that people are excited to see in stories. Like he, he kind of was the center of Hellions in some ways, you know. Oh, it's so good. Hellions was honestly, I cried. Did you cry at the end? I, I cried at oh, the end yeah. of Hellions. It was so good. Um, really, that, you know, that, you know, I, I cried, I'm going to say I cried easily, but I definitely like, I was properly moved as an oh, poor, poor, you know, nanny maker. Uh, not nanny maker. Yeah. That's, oh my God, that's a great character. Nanny maker. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I just get on the phone to Jordan. Jordan, I've got an idea for a book. Um, <laughs> what Orphan if, maker, yeah. It's funny, like as a, as a writer, especially for work for hire, I kind of move between two modes. Like when I'm first hired to do a job, I'm working from the outside in. Uh, like, okay. And I'm, I'm stepping back and looking at a book and going, okay, what's going on here? Like, what, why is this book not selling as well as it should? Or, you know, I'm, I'm aware of why Marvel has hired me. I'm not always coming from my own, and then I, you know, I'm not always coming from my own ideas of what, uh, what am I doing as an artist? I'm very much going to, if it's worth a hire, I'm being hired for a reason. And then I, of course, I find a thing that I find artistically valid, which also serves the purpose and, you know, everything gets balanced. So at that kind of stage, you sort of step outside. I'm not really thinking about like my, my favorite characters. You know, I'm thinking about like, okay, how, why, why is this character ended up where they are? And he's taking that very big, it's a critic's eye view, basically. Mm-hmm. In the case of Sinister, he is, I said this about Exodus in a mail recently. He was hit hard by the 90s stick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's that bit like, you know, there's, there's a really, there's a lot of really good ideas in there, but none of them have been picked really. And it's like, there was never really a sense of who he was or what he wanted, you know, because the nineties was about the idea of these endless plots about, um, people being Machiavellian and trying to set things up and set, you know, the writers always change too quickly. So none of the plans came to fruition. So it's never, re- and the fact that characters changed hands as much as it did means it's never really mm-hmm. a sense of any real individual desire of him. So yeah. like the first thing for me was, okay, let's drill down. Like, you know, let's give him something he wants. And in case of like, um, when I was writing him, it was the, oh yeah, he views as evolutionary competitiveness. He wants to, he wants to win the evolutionary war. He viewed, as I made him as a species, sinister as, you know, and that was his goal. Mm-hmm. And that's why he's been studying mutants because mutants saw the emergent species and then the competition. Um, and if you kind of look at sinister through the modern, through that filter now, it's like, if you can't beat them, join them. That's where sinister, you know what I mean? That's literally mm-hmm. what he's done. Um, 
And I sort of, another question was like, you bring up stuff in the mix you think is interesting. So I was like, there's a lot of like random scientists. So you're always trying to make, okay, what makes this scientist different? And I think about this, all characters, like if a character's super strength, it's like when people have the same powers, I try to think about how are they different? So like for me, Hulk is strong in a very different way than Thor is, you know, and all that. Mm. In the case of Sinestra, it's like, okay, he's, a, he's an evil geneticist scientist. Okay. There's a lot of them around. What, why is he different? So like, you know, and they end up picking that apart. And for me, evolve. This is the point where I changed from what's the problem with him to deep dive into the continuity. So like, I went back and obviously the original idea for Sinister never ever happened. You know, the idea yeah. was essentially a thought projection by, you know, teenage Scott, which is a great idea for a character, but that it, for me, that is. was gone. You know, that was just like, it, yeah. it, that'd been lost in the mix. So I went back yeah. to his in-canon religion, uh, not religion, origin. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's a, naive, he's a 19th century, he knew Darwin. And that's something that's, that was kind of like immediately interesting. Like, okay, he's a 19th century dude. There's, there's a perspective. I can, I can write him as a 19th century geneticist, a very different kind of perspective. And I ended up going into the idea, 19th century ideas of science uh, mm-hmm. and um, all that. And then they're like, okay, he was fun to, who's more fun to be around? So I made him a bit Oscar Wilde. You know what I mean? <laughs> Especially because the idea, there's, there's nothing at the bottom. You know, the idea of if there's not really a personality, because he's part of his origin was he kind of gave up who he was because he didn't want to be right. that person anymore. And the idea, if you would you let go of any sense of who you are for whatever reason, you're rudderless. So I, I kind of view Sinister as this thing with no bottom. You know, mm. there's no, there, it's just a void down there. Um, and that's when I was, re- that's kind of one of the things that when I did when I reinvented him, I, you know, he was, the first you see is he's a clone and he makes a new clone and he's, he's tweaked his personality and he, oh no, that's wrong. And he kills himself and tries again. And the idea of like the photocopying of him and the, mm-hmm. and of course that was always my back door because I was aware that if, you know, people didn't like what I did, they, you know, Sinister would go, oh no, I'll go to the backup and go with that guy instead. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and right. I was like, I was, I was trying to be um, liked with my meddling. Um, I think t- the single idea I think that I most like about where Sinister ended up, and it was, uh, it wasn't like the big idea. It wasn't about the the uh, the, the idea of the the imperialism, except in a kind of indirect area. Well, it's the mm-hmm. idea of Sinister sees mutants because most people mutant hate mutant, mutant villains hate mutants. Sinister loves mutants, but he doesn't see them as people. He right. thinks the, the only thing that's interesting about mutants is their genes. You know what I mean? Like he right. literally objectifies people. And what Sinister's yeah. gift is, and when I say gift is, by which I mean how he sees the world, is like he is somebody who appropriates things and uses it and uses it in ways which you couldn't do if you saw them as a person. Like there's a throwaway, we referenced this in the first issue, but like there's a bit in the first time I wrote him, he had a gun that fired Cyclops eyeballs, which is yes. like, it, it's a funny gag. I'm sorry, I, I'm saying this, I think it's a funny gag, but it also mm-hmm. says, you know what I mean? It's like, it's somebody yeah. who looks at Cyclops and goes, I can make a gun out of that. And that's, yeah. that's fun. You know what I mean? And that's fun, but also terrifying. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of what I think's like that you boil down Sinister to Wildean, um, Wildean attitude, a bit of 19th century, like high drag aesthetics, you know, cause the, the, he's drifted more 20th century as we've gone along, uh, as other writers have taken him mm-hmm. and, uh, at an industrialist and or colonialist approach to a uh, genetic yes. content. That's the kind of the core. And that's why he's scary. That's why he's a bad guy, you know? Right. Um, uh, so that's the, that, that was the kind of the core thinking of me. And that's kind of. Where is now? I think, I think if you went to my original document and I mailed it to you, you'd be interested like the stuff I didn't didn't stick. Because I, as per usual with me, there's always too many ideas. And, kind <laughs> of the, the, and the great joy of, oh really, I mean, it's it's a mess. It's not, it's not, okay, that's not fair. It's a lot. It's not necessarily a mess. It's just a lot. Mm. And the great joy of having gone through a number of people's hands now is, I mean, I can imagine Sister approving. This is survival of the fittest. 
You know, ah. all those ideas have been released. They competed and we got down to the ones that really worked. Uh, if you will, a very pure diamond, this pure oh. red diamond of Sinister, which I now have to pick up and then put a different spin on, you know, uh, it's fun, you know, but like, obviously that, I'm somebody who loves creating own work, but this is a really interesting work for higher challenge. I mean, this is kind of unlike taking over a mortal is very different from almost any job I've ever done in that I'm aggressively leaning into the status quo that exists. Like I want to mm. pick up where, uh, where Jonathan left off, you know, in that. And they, they, cause partially because the office is such an amazing, I say Jonathan, I mean, because we follow Inferno so tightly. What I really yeah. mean is the continuity of the office as it works so well as this sort of anarchist commune supporting one another. And I really wanted to do <laughs> something which was additional to that, but also a big new input. As in, because I've been watching as a reader and like, mm. so I've been watching it from the outside and going, you know, if I was these characters, this is what I would be doing. And you kind of get that in the first issue with Sinister in that kind of the whole big twist at the end of the first issue, which I won't spoil yet in this podcast. Yeah. You know, the whole big twist is me going, okay, if I was sinister, <laughs> this yeah. is what I would do. You know, I, I, from the beginning of the, the dawn of X, it was really clear to me how much myself and my friends wanted there to be an X-Men series that was focused on the capital P politics of Krakoa um, within the mutant community um, as well as without. And, um, I'm so glad that we just suddenly got one and that it was, you know, it's being written by someone who like actually really cares about politics with the capital P as well. Um, so this was just a perfect, a perfect matchup. Did, did you pitch the series or was it something or, or were they like, uh, Hey, Kieran, come write something for X and you come up with it with, you know, you, you come up with what it is or was Jonathan like, we need to have a series that focuses on the quiet council. It was, I was approached just saying, Hey, uh, Kieran, do you want to do a quiet council book? It was that simple. <laughs> um, and I think cause that point Jonathan was, we knew that Jonathan was going to leave the uh, office. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was approached, uh, in that kind of, Hey, Jonathan's leaving. Are you interested in doing a quiet council book building off, uh, what became Inferno? Was it called Inferno then? Yeah. I think it was called Inferno then still. Um, mm -hmm. so anyway, it was always explicitly come and do it. And that's, I think I've said this in other interviews. I only realized it halfway through an interview. I was like, Oh yeah. This would be the book Jonathan would be doing if he was still in the office, isn't it? You know, the high level Krakoan book. That's kind of right. his, his jam. So in like, like, that's how I think they picked me because I'm somebody who is interested in politics, both capital P and small P as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I mean, you know, there are people going around a table voting and being Machiavellian. That's very much my jam, especially like a mm -hmm. decade off. Like, um, you know, uh, I think that's so interesting. If you compare the two playlists, you get a sense of where the two books are coming from. Like this feels... An, an, an older book you know what i mean like uh I, i've been around the block a few times mm -hmm. um and i think that's very very much visible but, but to flip it I'm around sorry, is, which which is the other playlist you said the other playlist oh my original if you dig out my uncanny x-men i had one from uncanny x-men back in the day oh wow like, yeah, okay com compare and contrast and it's like that it's much more kind of pugnacious like the old one is um that one is arranged almost chronologically you can always see characters beats uh like the entire of the uh Magic subplot is the uh, confided me by Carly Minogue. Oh uh, wow! Okay, yeah. I'm gonna look that up later. Thank you. Um, it's a fun playlist, I think. But yeah, yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I'm always thinking about is, as people who are like definitionally anti-monarchist, we, you know, we read these stories, like for example, Black Panther, um, and now you know X Men with the Quiet Council, in which there's characters who you're sort of like, oh, I love this person. But they're actually serving as a ruler in a system that is not a political system. That is what any of us would design. 
it's always, it's, it's complicated. Um, and it feels like it's something that gets avoided in a lot of stories, like actually talking about that. Cause this X-Men political system, like this whole time I've been like, oh, their political system is, is completely bullshit. And I'm sure, I hope they get around to like dealing with that. And now I'm like, oh, I have a feeling that they might know. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. What do you think about like that, that conflict that we have when we're, when we're reading stories about that? Oh, I think it's kind of like, I mean, part of it, the pat answer is part of it's what's fiction's for, you know, mm -hmm. the idea that fiction, we can take stuff we don't necessarily agree with and play with it in that way. Like, and the, and you have different characters and like the council have very different opinions and you could sort of play those games of personalities. We can watch it out and ideas can wrestle. And, you know, we can, this, we, the distance of fiction allows us to do stuff like that, which is not like saying fiction isn't, you know, doesn't have impact on reality and all that kind of thing. But at the same time, fiction is important because you can step back and do things yeah. which are immoral. You know, like, um, I mean, a lot of my work is about uh, people who I find desperately immoral. You know, like, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm very interested in why, just why people do bad things and why they self-justify. Like, yeah. that's, that's the, you know, I mean, that's the, cause be, it, this might be a Catholic thing, but like, uh, being good is really easy. Like in my head, it's like, you know, so everyone knows what to be good is. If everyone was good, it'd be easy. The problem is, <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's like, we, we're not, we, we generally don't, uh, we are, tend to be a fallen species, but dialing back to the, I mean, you're right. And of course the pro unpacking the problems of like fictional, uh, setups is occasionally part of the thing. In the case of Kokoa, it's like the whole part of Kokoa for me is that can, you know, Kokoa will go on forever because we're all immortal now. Can they, um, how will the system shake down? Cause like immortal just gives you more chance of the problems to either collapse the system or not. I mean, I found mm. myself thinking, I mean, I, I was, I went for a period like beginning of lockdown year reading a I finally decided to read a proper history of China, like from the beginning, because I, I wanted to be able to know wow. the, the, the dynasties in order. Like, not like a deep history, but that kind of, you know, the really basic, do I know which dynasty becomes in which order? You know, that kind of yep. really basic question. And I do know, and I know roughly <laughs> what they're like and what period they're in. Um, don't test me, but like, you know, roughly, I couldn't, I, but yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's the, you know, yeah. everything like, and it's that ability to understand, because it's kind of came from, if we did this whole issue across 6,000 years of culture, jumping forward yeah. 90 years each time and that high level of human culture made me basically there's always 4,000 years of basically if i was being honest i would probably skip between egypt and china if i was really talking about what was most important going on in the world at any time like how long this stuff has been going on for mm. um but but the one thing that took is like you know all of those empires lasted about 300 years like all the all the, before they collapsed in on themselves and you know they all thought they were mortal in different way you know they can you can sort of say whether you you know, there's this continuity between different empires that, you know, Rome didn't fall for a very long time, but in a real way, 300 years is about all an empire gets. And I found myself thinking about that, looking at America, for example, looking yep. at Russia, actually looking <laughs> at, uh, you know, like all these kind of, everything seems immortal until it doesn't. Um, mm -hmm. And the case of the X-Men, the challenge is how can we make a society which protects our people for long, forever, ideally? How can we make sure this doesn't fuck up? Uh, you know, and I think all those, are, and the push and pulls between that and all the serpents in the crib, like what do you mean? What do you do when you accidentally got a, you know a Stalin on the Quiet Council? Because um, mm -hmm. you know as somebody who leans quite you know I lean left as you know, lean. <laughs> like what, one of my questions I always ask is not always ask, but I, I spend a lot of time thinking about is how to have a revolution that doesn't end badly. You yeah, because revolutions also have historical tendency to cr crush marginalised people too, and those yeah. kind of low questions I think are, are really important. Um, so well, all that kind of stuff's in my head, and that's at least the and something like the Quiet Council. Or like a fictional thing, you get to play with the ideas in a way which is both 
dramatic, but also at slight, it has to be at a slight distance because there's people on the quiet council we would never, ever accept in real life or want to ruling in real life. But as a fiction, we can play games with them and hopefully we can put them a test tube almost because there's a Petri dish over them. Well, I mean, the thing that you're, that you're doing here is just like something that would have really self-organized from the start is like you're actually building political factions within the Quiet Council that aren't just mapping based on who was on a team with each other before, but are ma more mapped on what their political analysis of, of a situation is. It's beginning to just dive into like, what are the political factions where in a, in a space where the options aren't, aren't just like Magneto, Xavier, and generalized evil, you know? Yeah. It's not, I mean, like, yeah, that's the idea, especially because this is one of the things we, you were said earlier, that like, this is the run more than any that builds on something previously. Me starting, my first thing was, okay, this is how I see the, the Quiet Council why not. So I wrote little short essays on each of them, as in this is where I thought they were. And this is built upon just seeing where they've been, what they want. Um, and digging, you know, uh, which is interesting. Talking about this, I'm aware that it sounds like it's a book about idea, the, the ideas and the politics and the abstracts, except it's not as well. It's also a book about the people, you know, the yeah. soft politics, the put, I can't stand that guy, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, and the, and that's the soft politics is very specific. And that's also like this, there's a real character-based stuff, I think, in the book as well. I think one of the, the main devices I'm using is that every issue is narrated by a different character. Like the first mm. issue is sinister. The second issue is... Um, uh, I can't be good to spoil it. Hope. Second issue is hope. Uh, oh, because good. We, we now hope. So, and then we kind of go from there. And I'll keep that up as long as it serves the story. And then the second it doesn't, I'll stop. That's sure. very much, you know. Um, uh, and it's not means that all, the whole issue is from their perspective. Like you see in the first issue, there's a whole scene with um, Exodus and Hope, which Sinister isn't around. And there's more right. of that. I mean, I'm not going to slow the story down just to do character focus episodes. But at the same time, oh, there's significant character focus. And so you're like, saying you're not going to let yourself get trapped in formalism? Oh, no, no. We, <laughs> I thought, okay, yeah. I was, I was joking. So this isn't formal. Though, no, I've just mentioned it is. It would have been, no. Am I getting more formal? Oh, it's pretty formalistic. You know, the fact I started with a homage to, um, uh, you know, the scene from Hawks, um says a lot. You know, that kind of, oh, they're on the bench. They're whispering to each other. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing it again. Um, but it's interesting because the thing about doing a story about mortality, a one of the things I've said before, it stretches forward and back. Like, obviously, immortality continues forever. But several of these people have been alive for a long time. You know, like uh, uh, Raven, Irene, Nathaniel, mm -hmm. about 200 years. Uh, Magneto, like 20, early 20th century. Exodus, as you say, he's Crusades. Uh, I mean, like, yeah. he spent most of that time in a sleep capsule. He's kind of Captain America, uh, but yeah. more so. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, he's been around for a long time. You know, uh, Celine turns up in the first issue. 17,000 years, that girl. Um, mm. <laughs> so, um you know, so t history also goes back. And the idea, uh, I found myself thinking, I know this is the most pretentious thing I'm ever going to say, but I was, I'm thinking about issue, I've started drawing the Shaw issue recently, which surprised me because he's a character I thought was going to be less important than he's ended up being. And like, there's something, I've realized something almost Proustian to what I'm doing in places in terms of like where, how I'm hitting memories. And I say, and all mm -hmm. like, I'm not going deep Proust or anything, not, but you know, because I haven't read Proust, but you know, that, the, hmm. uh, like my understanding of that as in, okay, let's, let's just hit these memories of these people who've been around for a long time and it is definitely one of the things we stretch forward a long way as well which is fun too stretch um, forward a long way meaning the idea, you know there's always an excellent thing about what's the future going to be and in some mm -hmm. ways they argue about why it's going future that you know when we're doing future timeline stuff and that that's always been a traditional thing in the x-men um yeah what you really say a future timeline stuff is saying how can things go right and wrong and it's ways of externalizing the internal debates 
And that's kind of what I think, you know what I mean? That's, that's, we talk about the X-Men metaphor a lot. And the thing about the X-Men metaphor is one of the things, it's a heavy duty lifting metaphor because it's, it's bigger metaphor for a lot of things simultaneously. <laughs> yeah. And occasionally they're in conflict. And that's why you have to sort of step back and realize the metaphor isn't actuality too. You know what I mean? Like there's always mm. a conflict between all these things. Um, where was I? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm, that's what I think the book's trying to do anyway. And also being a big part of this tapestry. I think that's the other thing though, the reason why I came back to do it was, um, I've never worked in an office like the ex office. So I wanted to, it sounded great from the outside. Let's try it. Yeah. See if I like it. And you know, and I do yeah. love, I mean, there's a little bit of a meta, I'm surprising no one, there's some meta, but the idea that Magneto leaves the choir council in the first opening scene, not the opening scene, but the opening of the issue really is the inciting instant. Mm-hmm. That's very much, you know, um, and uh, Jonathan has left the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. In a real way, you know, uh, the ex-office of Kokoa and Jonathan is Magneto. Mm. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's the radical who has brought us all together. Um, I love it. Yeah. yeah. It's, and it is, and it's also been in the office and seeing how Jonathan like, absolutely inspired people. Like people, there's been some people obviously being completely from the outside. People say, oh no, Jonathan's plan was blown up, et cetera, et cetera. And that's never, you know, it just doesn't seem like that. Jonathan's plan was to put, you know, give strength to all these voices and bring them together to do something bigger than any one voice. You know, yeah. great, a whole new different way of doing superhero comics. And he did it. John's a yeah. very clever dude. Yeah, no, it's it's really beautiful. And it feels like this is how much more of the shared universe building that happens in comics should be working. Um, I mean, at oh, least when I see. <laughs> yeah. I meant to say, actually, this is the other thing about it. I also realized, you know, it's invited me back. I don't think I would have done a, a book if it wasn't the Quiet Council book, which is the very weird thing to realize that, you know, if John hadn't gone, I wouldn't be here. And it's mm. just because like where I am now, a lot of the other sort of books in the X office I've kind of done, mm. you know, I said something a bit like that, but like an actual like high level, like muted politics book is, you know, the, with the weird austere, like pop music to it, I hadn't done, you know what I mean? So like it, it yeah. felt, yeah. It's a, it's a bit depressing thing to think about because I would have loved to expressly do a book that dances with Jonathan more closely. Um, in fact, we talked about doing a sort of sharing the first few issues of Mortal for a while. Like I wrote half, he wrote half, but that ended up not mm. shaking down for various reasons. Um, yeah. Well, it definitely feels like this is a continu- you know, in, in continuity with the, the series. So don't, don't fear on that. But um, it's interesting also just sort of it's like, oh, now I'm going to get to write it. And oh, I guess Magneto has to go, which is always a bit of like, put, you know, and I, I, I totally get it. But I um, and the, the cast shift, I mean, in some ways, uh, you know, you're inheriting certain and largely you're inheriting a certain cast and players and where they're located from where the series is set up. Uh, but you're also getting to make a couple of very specific picks mm. for who's being added to that tapestry here. Mm. It is. It's like, actually, I've just realized something I want to stress because I know what the X fandom is like. <laughs> it's like, when I say that, you know, there's the meta reading, it's not why I did it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, Magneto leaving was very much about other things. It just made a lot of sense for something like that to shake up the Choir Council and Magneto in a, like, a place which Al's exploring very much in X-Men Red or why he would do it. Um, so like, it wasn't that. It was much more be stepping back and thinking, oh no, this absolutely is metaphorically what John's did. Skipping back mm. to the pick. So one reason I wanted to hope on the Council is I'm just the five seem really important. You know, that was at least partly, this becomes a character moment instead of like the meta reading. It was like, you know, Hope's theme seems to be quiet and actually weirdly compliant considering she is, mm-hmm. shall we say, not always that way. Uh, she, you know, she is Cable's girl, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the idea that she is the, the means of production, if you will, or the means of reproduction as well. Uh, and the idea that there's a kind of, oh yeah, we're not, I want to, I want to say in this now and where that would lead. 
that struck me as interesting, especially because she's a very different perspective than the rest of the room. And by that point, I was thinking about people like Exodus. I mean, Exodus is the character. I've, I feel, um, I think I've said this, that if Sinister was the character I was most trying to twist and give a different view on, so if Sinister was the one in my first time in the X office, I think mm-hmm. Exodus is the one I'm most trying to give a twist to. I'm most yeah. kind of like, I think, I mean, I don't think, I'm, I don't think it's quite as hard a twist as I did to Sinister, but it's, it's kind of like a, del- a digging into what's interesting about it. And it's that kind of like, in the same way, you know, as we said earlier, you know, Sinister has been alive for like nearly a thousand years, but you know, he was slept for most of them. So the Captain America, him is real. You know, uh, the question mm-hmm. of his faith is very real. And how do you, especially his warped mutant Catholicism, that really interests me. Uh, and like how you would like yeah. square all those, uh, you know, they said I was raised Catholic. So like mm-hmm. there's Catholicism all over my work. And one of the weird things about a having a kid, but also, um, uh, the lockdown years, I've really kind of become hyper aware about work. I find powerful that is rooted from Catholic places. You know, even if I don't quote unquote believe it anymore, the idea of how mm-hmm. much I order my idea of the world around, like I never really thought about, you know, Lord of the Rings being a formative work for me in a very real way. You know, I've never thought about Tolkien's Catholicism before I wrote Die. You know, mm. or like, I was thinking about why have I gone to the whole study? Like the whole study of a band I've never read, you know, I've always got half been aware of, but I got into a hard two years ago and I couldn't hmm. really work out why I was into them as much. Because I don't often listen to male rock bands anymore. Um, and they're very yeah. male rock band. And then it was like, oh, there's entire second album was about Catholicism. You know, the, 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 the drunken Catholicism aspect and the, all the, you know, fallen people uh, and all that kind of stuff. Like, oh, right. Yeah, that, that stuff responds to you very powerfully. So, and I think one of the best, at least most disturbing issues of Wicked was the nun issue, like the nun Lucifer. And that's yeah. The, I mean, I remember like my friends, like Kate, uh, Katie and uh, Chrissy, pretty much looking at each other going, what the hell's going on here? In that, look at the weird Catholic doing Catholic. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and that's kind of some of the energy I'm bringing to Exodus in a very different way. Um, oh, I see it. Yeah. I have no idea what people will make of it because it's so much, he's quirky in that way, but at the same time. There's something like really how he, how he sees the world and you, and you take it seriously. And especially like him and Shaw, you know, like if you take those characters seriously as leads for a second and look at their lives and think, mm-hmm. okay, how do you explain, how do you best explain them? You see them as different because when characters are support, me trying to tr- treat each of the cast members as a lead character in their issue is really letting me open them up. Like I said, the Shaw issue has made me go, oh, this is really, he's a more interesting person than I thought. Ooh. Um, you know, uh, I don't. You know, I don't think I'm going to get anything revelatory about it. But some good stuff there, I think. Uh, and it's yeah. like and they just sit heavy. It's like I'm really looking forward to the Xavier issue, um, which is like my deep. I've got some deep dives into Xavier, and uh, and it's mixed. It's a really big political book. It's a big plot book. Lots of big stuff happens, but it's always through this tight focus on the people, you know, and what makes them tick. Um, and you get to and you get you know them by the end of the issue a bit better. I hope. Uh, well, yeah, I, hope I know like that. It. Yes. Well, I know that when I, I asked actually on the, um, the, the Cerebro Discord, like folks had questions for you and everybody had talking about Exodus. You mentioned, you know, how he spent a lot of time in the stasis chamber and the Captain America man on a timepiece. I, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by him continuing to be like this religious alkali who was a true believer. And like that is his viewpoint in the world. And, um, you know, his whole thing with bringing in hope. I mean, hope's a character you've written before. And also the, uh, point council has been missing the voice of a young person this entire yeah, yeah, yeah. time. So that, you know, that was a great combination, but like, I literally got a listener question that was like, does Exodus appreciate modern music? 
that sounds literally, if, if it could define my readership, that would be it in this kind of, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. don't think he does. I mean, um, mm-hmm. who was another podcast asked me it's recently. And often one of my pet bugbears is people writing superhero comics and having the characters like cooler music than they should. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Because I think mm-hmm. a lot of superheroes don't have cool taste in music. And I don't mean, and I, I did a whole, as, you, as both of us know, uh, I've done an entire series about unpacking the poisonness of the concept of cool. But like for <laughs> listeners who don't know me well, when I say cool music, I mean people who are obsessively into pop culture in that way. I don't think that not a lot of superhero characters are. Some are. I bet like, I don't know, Emma Frost knows her stuff. Um, you hmm. know, and then before, because you throw parties, if you know, throw parties, you need to know a bit more. Um, but Exodus, um, I mean, Exodus is probably still free to, with a person out of time, you're always like, how much you lean into it. He's probably weirded out by, if someone plays like a, uh, a sixth, he's still like, oh, burn that, burn the organ. You should be playing <laughs> six. Uh, you know, that's the, the, the devil's chord. You know, that's, oh my God. that's a, what, yeah. you, you could write that scene, which would be pretty funny. Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) i'm curious i want to know your headcanons about which x-men actually have i don't mean good taste in music per se quote unquote good i mean like which x-men have put a lot of thought and into music like i mean obviously dazzler but who has who who's put a lot of thought and energy into thinking and listening to music it's really true like i find it mostly sort of like i don't know scott i find interesting because i don't think he listens to you know me but i can imagine he listens to some nice aor you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> there's, there's something quite like, like you know, really nice middle of the road records, um, uh, which I find quite. I don't imagine like him, Scott, listening to the Doobie Brothers or something. Like, I, I can love, see, like, yeah, I believe it. He, he's such know, a dad. So, yeah, sure. that, honestly, Scott's dad rock energy would be very yeah. real. Oh, remember on the council? Oh, I can't imagine like uh, Eric or like um, Eric and Charles. I can't imagine listening to anything but like. Um, classical and what a steer modern classical you know mm. if you were going to you know and eric wouldn't oh you know eric would probably have very strong opinions of what counts as human music as well mm. uh I, but um i've just going in the cast hope probably isn't to music that much but she probably picked up some of her friends you know what i mean like mm-hmm. i feel hope hope just feels like you know she spent most of her years growing up in the middle of a desert first of all yeah. she's she's that person who grew up in canada who parents wouldn't let her watch tv so like <laughs> you know she's not she's not up to date on top of yeah. pop culture or you know so yeah. it feels a bit weird and new to her um and i can imagine her had picking something and then oh i quite like this and then her friends rolled their eyes at her like imagine velocidad uh if velocidad was still around going i love it's not cool it's not cool hope it's not cool i know you're trying to be cool because i like this record for hope um <laughs> i'm going with, i really love it i imagine kate is okay uh i imagine nightcrawler is okay um yeah, I think, I mean, Kate, Kate and Nightcrawler would lead that way. I don't think Irene or Raven are usually pop music people, but you never know. So, so, uh, to, so Des- Destiny having a, a seizure during a particular musical performance was not actually connected to her experiencing of the music at all. It was just. I mean, the synesth- maybe it's dangerous for the, like Irene. Maybe it's the synesthesia is the problem because music is very powerful. So maybe it's yeah. the idea, anything that triggers visions is, is risky for Irene, I guess. Um, I, so I mean, I'm just making, I'm now creating a head cannon right there. But you know what I mean? That's kind of the, yeah. like, obviously that opening for me was so much about art and the idea of how things could resonate differently. Because obviously it's not, what, what, I'm really interested in Destiny's gifts. I've said this in other interviews, but like, she's probably the biggest X-Men character who's appeared in the least number of issues. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? In, in terms of her impact in the, yeah. st- in the larger story. Um, 
So getting to write her and write her with um, Raven and also write a bit more about the history together because, like, you know, we can finally say they were, you know, it's my wife. Uh, we can finally yeah. say that. Um, but also dig into how, how Destiny sees the future. You know, I'm really interested in that. Um, so like when we get to her focus issue, I kind of, we go quite hard into, okay, how do you, how does the bit, how does the gift work? Um, oh, that's think, so exciting. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we nail it. It's tricky because it's like, it's a, seeing the future is the difficult power to do in comics because you need to give it limitations people know, but also strengths as well. Otherwise it's just, you know, especially she's got, I don't want to say anymore before we spoil anything. We're definitely like, okay. in the first issue, you get a lot of the energy because the whole kind of, you know, the sinister, sorry, Nathaniel and Irene, let's go first names. The, uh, Nathaniel, Irene energy for the first issue is, mm-hmm. I just find it, I find it very funny and delightful. When, um, yeah. Uh, Chrissy described, uh, my wife uh, disc- uh, heard me talking about Nathaniel Essex, at least part of the joy, the first issue is how old he thinks he's completely controlled and then he falls on his face. And she described it, yeah. oh, he's Fraser, you know, Fraser Crane. And it's like, oh yeah, he's, <laughs> he's, he's you know what I mean? And that's very true. He's, he's this wow. abstractly very intelligent person who you really enjoy seeing fuck up. <laughs> that's, so does that also mean that he's a stupid person's idea of a smart person as that internet meme would throw? That's interesting a, too. A li- he is a little bit, well, it's the, the layers of that, as in like, especially because he's self-perform, he's performing a smart person's idea, you know, what, especially because it's how he's chosen to perform. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he, he literally proved himself to be more charming. Essentially, that's how I wrote it. Uh, what, right. Well, it's ch- charming is probably not the right word. He, ch- he proved himself to be a better uh, irritant. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I, I should actually dial back and ask you, like, what is your connection to the X-Men as characters? Because you, as someone who got into comics at a slightly older age, you, you might have a, a different relation to the X-Men than a lot of us do. I do, and that's tricky. I think part of it is the fact I did come in late means that I have, I lack some of the deep continuity and the deep affection. When I say, just for the wrong word, the deep connection in terms yeah. of my own autobiography. Like my understanding of the X-Men, I always loved the X-Men, but it's patchy. I talk about like, I read two X-Men, American X-Men comics when I was a kid, and it's, I think it's 205 and 207. Like mm-hmm. it, it's the... It's the, well, the, the second one was, uh, was the Black, uh, was like the Hellfire Club versus, and the X-Men versus Nimrod in the park uh, when Harry Lee oh, and dolls. those are and some like, good it's issues. A good, it's a good issue. Like, <laughs> but you pick yeah. it up, and I don't know anything. I don't know who any yeah. of these characters are. I don't know why they're here. I don't know who this big pink robot is. I don't <laughs> know, like, who's this lady in the underwear? Why is this Rachel Gray person hurt in the, who stabbed her? Uh, oh, I guess it's Wolverine. Aww. Who's this person with four arms at the end? Um, I don't, but you know, I loved it. <laughs> and that kind of the idea, this is partly the idea of whilst every issue is the first version of this issue, you can also make it really compelling as a thing by itself. Like you go, oh, who are these people? And I kind of, I hope with my first, so I'm always kind of re- writing for that new newcomer. And then how can I try to explain these characters the best I can in a small way as possible? And that's at least some reason why I try to get characters like Exes or Sinister down to a core which people can grasp. Because if you can explain the core simply people oh i get this person a bit and then everything else is depth you know what i mean you want the arrowhead yeah. to a character for me if you had to critique me occasionally that narrow head is might be too like blood for somebody who wants the ball what's the assumption that you know the characters well enough to know what's going on with them all the time i want to restate everything as much as possible um mm-hmm. and also i kind of i suppose i stress more recent continuity like i stress what cats has been doing for the last five years is what i most look at and then I also mm-hmm. look at the big stuff. 
You know what I mean? I think yeah. you as an, as an ex-fan, you'll, you can do that in your head in terms of what are the most important stories in Magneto? And you'll list them off the top of your head and you'll also, you know, and what they've been up to recently. And that's what I mm-hmm. kind of try to drill my stuff down to because that allows, because I actually have continuity to the stories people have been reading, but also not, and the big stuff, which people really care about. Cause that's the other thing about X-Men. There's so many stories about all the characters. Now, some of them are kind of contradictory. <laughs> so you've always got to edit and that's kind of how I see. I've actually, you may notice I've gone from my personal attachment to stuff to my, my higher level stuff. My personal mm-hmm. attachment is definitely the push and pull between. I've read all the, cause the stuff they were reprinting as a, a kid in the UK were mainly like sixties X-Men. So I was reading sixties hmm. X-Men at the same time oh, as eighties X-Men. Hmm. And that, and that, so you don't really have any idea of the long form continuity per se. Yeah. And then of course yeah. there's also the X-Men in pop culture that you pick up on, like, um, yeah. you know, the cartoons, the video games, um, you know, the movies, uh, and, and I think the first actual X- ongoing X-Men book I read as it was coming out was, um, Grant's. That's when I came <laughs> into comics. So it's kind of, like the f- that was introducing me to a lot of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, and, you know, of course you can sort of see that with some of the characters I really like, like, you know, I've never read Emma Frost before Grant's Emma Frost, just because right. the way I read comics. So that's kind of someone I immediately, I, oh, this is my favorite person. You know what I mean? So like, mm-hmm. it's weird because I still, it's so weird that you always feel like a faker if you haven't been reading it since all the way f- from my, fi- if I was five and reading it continuity wise, but I've sort of just realized when saying this, I've been reading X-Men comics for 20 years nonstop now. That's yeah, not exactly. It's a lot, <laughs> you know, and it's a lot of the very relevant things. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I was just curious because, um, yeah, I, 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 I figured it was a Grant Morrison sort of an answer too. So, yeah, it's interesting. Like, you definitely pick up. They just seem really resonant. And like, and I definitely have a, a hot take on what I like about the X-Men. And I'd rather not say it because if you say it, immediately you, you offend all the fans who that isn't their hot take. You know, like, mm. what is the X-Men at a core to you? Especially because some of the books, of course, will be more covering that area than what I'm doing, you know? Mm. Like, so that kind of, only part of the joy of the X-Men, it's amorphous. It's, and it's endless. It can be so many different things. It's one of the things I often say is like, X-Men are unique in terms of major franchises in that they are defined, they are in, they're undefined. They're called the X-Men. In other words, anyone who is an X-Man, which is a, a term that can be broadly defined to whatever, can be a lead in the book. And that also means that, you know, that's why heroes become villains and villains become heroes so much in the X-Men, because it, none of it's solid. It's about a community of people. It's about, uh, it's about this whole broader idea of mutant dub. And that right. means you can, and that's the, that's one of the geniuses of the hot pox, Jonathan created co area is that, mm-hmm. you know, let's just bring all the villains on board and let's put them all in the same room because they're so good when they get to talk to each other. You know, and like it makes that is one of the things I find most. Ex- that's why the X Men as a concept is so exciting, I guess, and that's one of the reasons why so much of the spin offs tend to be like team books as well, because it's a team right. book. It's like you know, it's it's the uh, it's, it's nesting dolls. You know, there's it's team books inside team books inside team books. It's team to the core. Yeah. Was there something in particular about the Hickman relaunch of X Men? Like, what was the thing that most blew your mind and most made you excited to come back and to write in this world? That's a that's, it's a big question. That one. I was just really bold. You know, I think it's the same reason mm-hmm. everyone liked it at the start, as in like, oh yeah, uh, a Marv, Jonathan had asked for the space and Marvel had given it him, and they were doing it. Like, here we go, like two six issue minis released. You know back and forth except when they weren't released back and forth that's probably my favorite minor detail as in like it wasn't just one two one two one two it was like one two 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 one one like because this is a better way for it to be released and you can imagine i can mm. imagine the argument jonathan had with somebody over that and jonathan was like nope that's how it works um and how he like they brought the data pages in the integrate i mean i'm i think this is one of the areas of me and john have been quite 
fellow like traveling similar road like there's a lot of i've always done like lots of text pages in my comics um mm-hmm. i've just like ne- you know john's a designer so he can do more stuff than i ever was able to and the idea of like what you can do with text because you know text is also image um bringing yeah. that in and yeah just just the enormous boldness of it i guess um and how it paid off and how the and it really made I mean, Jonathan doing Hoxpox was at least part of the reason why I decided to do Eternals because I knew Marvel was a place you could do fun stuff like that again. You know, in the same way I imagine like when uh, when New X-Men happened. New X-Men was proof that you could do a book like New X-Men at Marvel. Right, right. No, that, that that's very true. And, you know, like you with the Eternals we spoke about when you were here before, like you, you're sort of getting invited to reinvent like what is an Eternals book for the 21st century. And, and now you're going to be heading up this X-Men Eternals crossover event, which I am really excited about now that I, that, that, cause you're the one writing it. You had said something to me before we went live about your approach to their conflict between each other. I'm writing Eternals. I'm also writing like a, a big X-Men book. Um, you know, and I, I've, I've been using a lot of the Avengers stuff in uh, Eternals and people are always nervous about like crossovers and like, well, for lots of reasons. But like, in case it derails their books, is one of the main ones. Yeah. And for me, this is explicitly, this emerges aggressively from where the books are. Like, the inciting incident is absolutely stuff from the ex-office, it's stuff from the Eternals uh, books, and it's coming to the surface. I hope it feels bought. You know what I mean? That's actually part, that was part of my figures. Oh no, this isn't just, this isn't like, I view this more like, okay, for X-Readers, this should be more like Inferno uh, than, mm-hmm. it, than it is like Avengers versus X-Men or whatever. Like Thank the you. idea, well, you know, like, <laughs> I know, like, you know, I highly enjoyed Avengers versus X Men, but the idea of like this is something which absolutely comes from something we've been building towards. Um, mm-hmm. And the flip of it is that whilst it's got multiple acts, and I don't really want to talk about the later acts, but the first act is, oh yeah, it's Avengers versus you know Avengers X Men versus uh, Eternals, but I'm explicitly you know, black hatting the Eternals from the start. Like the Eternal Society at this point are good. At, the people who be reading the book are good Eternals, the people who'd be mainly be following have left Eternal Society. And that, of course, mm-hmm. has pretty much pushed Eternal Society to a worse direction because they're no longer in it. Um, right. You know what I mean? And that's kind of like they're starting, I don't want to say exactly what the inciting incident is and who's in charge and what they're doing, but that kind mm-hmm. of like, oh yeah, the Eternals um, acting against the mutants is an act of aggression uh, and it's tied into a variety of other things. Um, our good Eternals are most are horrified too. The Avengers have no idea what's going on. That's the, that's the kind of that's what that's what that's, what that's their role, right? Bless Avengers them. Colin have huh? no idea what's going on. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really uh, writing a crossover, but trying to write the entire Marvel universe simultaneously is really hard because I with a, <laughs> it really is. I'm like I'm looking at twenty pages for an issue. We go, mm. uh, yeah, but, yeah. But but having the Avengers who have both the Eternals and the X Men have kept their secrets from them, which is really useful for a storytelling purpose. That means the Avengers discovering stuff is like the way we introduce it to the other people. Because X-Men readers were been reading Eternals. Eternals may not have been reading X-Men. And, you know, the idea of having characters who come in and actors read a surrogate early on to go, huh? <laughs> um, nice. It's good. And especially it's good. We said earlier about the, the different areas of the Quiet Council. Like, the mutantdom is complicated now. Different characters will have different responses to the situation they find themselves in. Uh, and that's fun. You know, especially the whole first act. Like, it's very much Eternals doing enormous, excellent... Uh, awful technologies uh, and the expert and having to deal with this and uh, that's interesting I hope people I, we think this event is months away but that kind of like 
sentinels on steroid approach, if you will. Because like, you know, if you had a million years to build your death robots, there's there's somewhat spectacular. That's a, a really big dramatic also political because there's other stuff going on. And then the second yeah. act changes things up and becomes something subtly different. Like I I definitely my aim is to have something that is as big as the widescreen superhero stuff I genuinely love, but also has a, a bit of style into it. There's some real philosophical stuff I think in the mix. And personal. This is about like both world state world scale devastation, but really drills down to people's so what's life for? You know? That's kind of what um what I want. And um, God knows if I can land it, because I'm definitely overreaching as always. But like um Valerio makes it look really pretty. <laughs> mm. I'm sure. Um, I'm excited. I'm also glad to sort of hear where the story is coming from with that. Um, yeah. It's hard. It's like, at the same time, I don't want to say, it's not that everyone's in the wrong, which is one. but I definitely, I'm not writing, a, I'm writing a more complicated position in terms of like, sure. you know what I mean? There's always, there was always that. There's definitely some people think the Eternals are in the right, but we, I think we're going to side against them, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I try to write characters' complexities, especially like, no, oh, I can't say that. It's okay. a, the, the biggest problem about doing a, a crossover that's so much coming out of what the books are doing means that anything I say about the inciting instance is spoiling the next few issues of comics. Got it. You know well, I mean? we don't like, need to do that. That's you know, it's, it's really, <laughs> and it makes it difficult to hype it as a thing. Because, you know, if you release any preview art, people go, ooh, <laughs> you know. Uh, that certainly yeah. was our response to seeing the cover for this first issue come out, the Last Supper cover, which is just so rich with references and details. Did you, did you work with uh, Mark Brooks on that, or like where did those pieces come from? I did. I sort of. Like, I mean, the idea of something being picked over like a game is obviously so, so much my jam. But like, no, hundred percent Mark's idea to do it. He was like, I want to do <laughs> a last. He said, I want to do a last last supper homage with all the Quiet Council and um, all as many references for the future of the book as possible on it. Uh, and I wow. and I went sure. So I sent him a, 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 lot, a very long email of things he could put on there and references and working out. Okay, this is where you should put this member of the uh, you know this apostle is this quiet council member, uh, and then we'll you know the whole so the whole thing is absolutely meant to be picked over and to be honest more looked at in retrospect <laughs> in that yeah. kind of way. You know, yeah. like it, it won't be, a, but all of it was kind of the stuff has been put there for a reason. You know, I gave Mark a lot of stuff and Mark ran with it. Well, I'm always struck by the description of um, our two lobsters there from uh, JMLs explaining the X-Men podcast of um, there being the the lobsters that are the protagonists of Die Hard. Um, so <laughs> we're now we're now seeing that on a cover, perhaps to be. Mm, but let's uh, let let's find out. Um, I I have a sort of a, a question that's bridging uh, the sections of what we're talking about here. Um, Marvel has had at times different tabletop RPG games. Have you thought about how an X-Men, this is a question from friend of the show, John Arminio. Have you thought about how an X-Men tabletop RPG might work? Has there been conversations with Marvel about creating such a thing? Well, I, I don't think about, I better say, I, tell what I want to do. Like, I'm, I'm restarting the compressed. My, uh, I'm doing a bit of my old. Yay! My old, we got a question. It's like, is he going to restart decompressed? Like, I'm actually, I've interviewed, I'm interviewing the X office basically. So I want to talk to everyone about their books. They come out basically, or like, or for the people who are doing books that are ongoing at the end of the article, I'll work out a reason. And you know, I'm a new, I'm a new father. So God knows if I'll actually finish it all, but I've got three in the can already and edited. Mm. Um, decompressed of those who don't know is my kind of like craft podcast where I interview creators. Um, and the one I would love to ask Jonathan about 
like, I don't know how I can drag Jonathan back. It's like, what has Jonathan played RPGs? Is Jonathan a gay, an old teenage gamer? Because I don't think he games now, but there's something about Jonathan that makes me, f- you know, that whole, that amazing bit in New Mutants where the, the fight scene when it was all based on dice. That was so funny. Uh, a, and also so much the sort of thing I would imagine I would write. And I always mm. imagine like Jonathan has an RPG or something somewhere, or at least a source book. Um, to answer the question, however, um, no, I have an, I must admit superhero RPGs are a little bit close to like where I eat. Like there's a really good game called Masks, if you have heard of it. Masks is a Powered by the Apocalypse game. It's explicitly about oh. running teenage superheroes. Um, uh, and that it, is my favorite system, Powered by the Apocalypse. You grab Masks. It, it's what it does is it absolutely gets how superhero comics work, which isn't about the who is stronger and is it. It's okay. Nope. Let's follow the emotional trauma. And as people go up and down and they, you know, you actually defeat the bad guy, but you end up, you know, your friends look down on you by how you did it. Right, you know, all right. that, and it's all about the emotion. And then you kind of have scenes where you're having hearts to hearts and you heal each other's conditions. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. So it's all about that emotion, really the big teenage powerful emotions. And if you were going to do a classic X-Men story, like, you know, at the, uh, at the mansion as, as teenagers and having all that kind of like drama and kissing and stuff, grab masks and run with that. That's what I would do. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's quite weird. One reason I've never ran it is I said, Hey, it's a bit close to what I do, but literally it's got like bits of young Avengers quotes as moves because people who don't understand power oh. by the apocalypse, power of the apocalypse works with these things called moves and moves are basically a trigger that happens in the fiction. So if somebody chooses to attack somebody, this happens. Um, and they name, and quite often they name the moves. Uh, and some of the moves are literally quotes from various comics and some of which are young Avengers. Um, so it's, it's quite close <laughs> to my oh, day job. Wow. Um, yeah. but like, if I was going to do a classic X-Men, I would do that. The other way of doing it, though, there's a, a game which is, it was it was in beta, but I think they pulled the beta to release it in a new edition. Uh, for, have they kickstarted it? Yeah, I forgot. Apocalypse Keys. Apocalypse Keys is kind of like, Hellboy's clearly the other influence. But if you're going to do like a Days of Future Past adult horror version of the X-Men, I kind of wanted to run in Apocalypse Keys. As you could do a really kind of like, quite creepy version of it. Um, hmm. In terms of an adult, in terms of like a Cohen era book, I can't think of a system that off the top of my head that would run it in, which is an interesting problem, you know? You never know. Maybe I will. Well, those are some exciting answers. So thank you. I, um, I, uh, you know, we've come upon the end of Die. We're going to be getting a beautiful hardcover book of it with you and Stephanie coming out. Um, I, November. Not I sure. Think. Yes. When? November, I believe. Just in time for a holiday gift season. Yes. Um, I, I've been, a, a, you know, a, <laughs> I, I've been thinking a lot, obviously, about the series and some of the themes that connect um, between that and actually some of your other work. I, I, both Die and the Eternal seem to have a lot of themes in common around the question of like choice, making choices with consequences. And when you're aware of that and when you're sort of trying to avoid considering it. My creator own and work for hire, there's always a rhythm as in I take the lessons I learned from the, those projects back into it. And to us, that's what Jonathan, if you're talking about Jonathan with Hoxpox, if you go look at Black Monday Murders, that's him taking, you know, Hoxpox is him doing Black Monday Murders at Marvel uh, in terms yeah. of all the lessons they did there. Um, and I was, there's a bit of that. Like, you know, I go and do a book like Die and Once the Future simultaneously and play with some stuff and go, okay, what can I apply back? And in case of Eternals, it, there's all the questions about rules and decisions, but also of Eternals, it's the, it's the deep world building. It's the idea of like the Tolkien-esque aspect of what I learned from Tolkien, I try to apply of Eternals. Um, so actually with Immortal, well, the technique I'm really bringing back is the tight character focus. 
like the, I described it elsewhere as neo-claremontism, uh, mm. which is just a sort of nonsense I like saying. But, um, but the idea of like, oh no, let's do a, because captions are really for balloons. And I think if there's something people aren't going to like about my first issue of Immortal, is, um, it's very captioning. There's a lot of talking. And th- that's partially because Sinister is talking, you know, <laughs> you know, but it's also partially because I'm trying to get people up to date. As I know, you know, I right. want people to be able to hear is, you know, once again, I'm thinking about newcomers as well as people who are reading the books already. So Sinister is somebody who knows a lot more than you would think is also explaining a lot. So the captions calm down the more you go into it. But at the mm. same time, we're also allowing, it allows you to have a tight focus on characters' perspectives. And so like in the same way, we followed Ash quite tightly and Di, and we really got to see what she was thinking about the world around her. And you got mm-hmm. lots of bits where you dance between someone says something and they have a caption between it, then another line from them. So you get that kind of like tight focus on the emotionality. I'm kind of doing, that's one of my major tools as I move around the Quiet Council, you know? And the other element I think that comes from Di is the gamemanship of it. You know, like Di is, whilst it's less, whilst it's more formalized than the, than the politics of the Quiet Council, there is kind of that vote aspect, you know, that mm. dies about, do you go home or not? And we've all got to agree. And the Quiet Council is, um, a lot of people, it's, it's so like, I think the major action set piece in issue one of like Immortal is the vote sequence. You know what I mean? That's always like, mm-hmm. a, it's a slow motion Miller, um, you know, Frank Miller-esque fight scene, but done with votes. <laughs> it's like, I love it. But like, look, the thing is X-Men fans are good with a talky comic. Like mm. they came up on Claremont which is just, even if they didn't come up on Claremont, X-Men is, it's, it's good for X-Men to be talky, actually. Mm. And I, I don't worry about, I wouldn't worry about like, oh, there's not, I, I have yet to hear, and maybe it's just that I talk to mostly other queer X-Men fans, but I've yet to hear anybody ever say there wasn't enough punching in an X-Men thing and that there was too much feelings and too much talking. <laughs> I hope so. But it's like, you know, you never, you always worry about a little bit. Different, I think it's necessary. I think, I think it's one thing is when you read, especially when you read Immortal Issue 1, I kind of hope people mm-hmm. go, oh, I see what they're doing. And like, I think it's like, you could be treating lots of ways, but I'm quite proud of how confident it is. Like, I think, mm-hmm. I think it's the main thing I've learned over the last decade is a bit more, com- to be more comfortable in myself, uh, in that kind of, hey, this is what we're doing. Do you want to come along? If, if so, great. If not, well, it, I'll see you around. And that's cool too. You know, there's, um, I hope mm-hmm. so. Anyway, you tell me. You've read it. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a. It's a lot of fun. I, I almost. I said, um, I was like, oh, we kind of sucks. Is that I, I, I wanted to be able to talk with Kieran when we we're farther in the series too, because, like, you know, I'm not the kind of person who like wants to do conversations about speculation. I want to have conversations about the text, and mm. we only have this small piece of it, but it certainly made me very excited to read and and hear more. I, I hope we will get to talk more about that series later on because. And then this combined one of of X Men versus Eternals, I am now very excited about. Drag, drag, I, drag me back when it's uh, whenever I finish. Drag me back. <laughs> we're gonna have the dismount interview. We'll see how things are turned out. Speaking of things turning out, I think that other than Meg Mog and Owl, which did a whole like story and released as a book um, taking place during COVID, that was about the gang's response and dealing with COVID crisis. I think the ending of Die is the first comic I've read that actually, like that wasn't like a news comic or like a journal comic that actually had COVID in it. And that was really sort of like this crazy moment to suddenly see on the page. Uh, and obviously it wasn't part of the original plan for the story because you began the story so much longer ago. How did you feel about like writing COVID into the ending of the, of the comic? It was really weird. As you say, it was like, um, 
that we didn't plan it. And I know people have been yeah. looking at us funny in Diamond and said, oh, the world ends in 2020 as part of our plot. And it's like, look, I, I better not Alan Mordis, you know. Um, <laughs> but it, with Case of Dio, it's like, well, that's what it is then. And I've had various reviews say it gives it a, a weird sort of scourging of the Shire energy, you know, like you go away. Oh, shit. Yeah. You know, you can, and that's not, that's not deliberate, obviously, because I couldn't plan COVID. But the, um, the reality of it was very important in this kind of like, you know, die. In fact, there's a big chunk of my work, which is a, aggressively set in a period of time. Like almost all, almost all my career around work is set in a period and I try to ground it. And once I'd bought into, oh, they've got to come back in 2020, early 2020, that means COVID. And it's like, oh, I'm just committed to writing that then because that's mm-hmm. what reality means. Um, so like it felt weird to, to write it. It felt very weird to draw it. And obviously the aesthetic effect was tricky because it definitely took some people out of the comic. Um, but at the same time, I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the comic does. Not that's a problem. If you lose, if it, if it, someone gets lost over something, they've lost and that's fine. But like, it felt like powerful and sad. And especially when you realize obviously what happened with Matt's dad or what didn't happen with Matt's dad in the comic, the idea of like all the sort of fear I would have over the separation of my mum coming out and all that. Cause you know, my mum's higher, uh, this category and lots of reasons. So yeah. there's lots of things. I mean, one of the weird things about Die was it's a it's about the concept of Die being about escapism. Like escapism has never been more attractive in those like those sort of two years, really, was it? Like right. the, in terms of like it may and where we ever do a die sequel, I expect so much of the thinking that happened in that year or more more actively go into it. But yeah, it felt like a weird bit of testimony as a, you know, this is this is where we were. I think it was important because I I don't know how helpful it is for people to continue to pretend that this hasn't happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it feels like people are returning to pretending that it isn't happening, which is actually going to make things worse. Um, yeah. So thank you. <laughs> I, I have a question, a piece of advice I'd like to try to get from you. Okay. Let's say you're a player in an RPG game and you're playing in an RPG game where the DM has made it very clear that like, you know, this is a world in which the players are supposed to be able to dictate a lot of the direction things are headed in. Um, I mean, I'll just say it's point of information. Like we're playing um, Blades and Blades in the Darkness or whatever. Um, and you know, like let. And yet, I feel like we're kind of there's a there's a, a thing that the quest was basically asking us to do that we didn't we didn't feel comfortable doing. Like, um, and we tried to find a way around it, and it didn't work. And now I feel like we're getting railroaded into it, and it's making. It's a kind of making me like not look forward to the game. It's kind of depressing. How do you feel like players can get something like that back on track? Well, it's like, I think most things are, there's a lot of really useful out of game tools, which I encourage. I mean, the most, sorry, the, the single tool I get most recommending to people, because the thing I most get, I get quite a lot of people say, Hey, I'm playing this game. It's normally a D&D game and I'm not enjoying it. <laughs> and I can't tell my GM that I'm not enjoying it because it's socially awkward. Um, there's a tool called Stars and Wishes, uh, like, and Stars and Wishes, um, this is, you don't know about it, is at the end of a session, you have this thing where you have stars, you go on the table and people can say Stars and Wishes, if you like, everyone, including the GM. And stars are basically affirmative things, as in, oh, I love this, or I loved it when you did this thing, or like that whole, that whole bit in the dungeon was amazing. And it's generally positive stuff around the table. This is useful for lots of reasons, partially because you often walk away from the table Okay, it makes you bond as a group for a start, you know, and it makes you appreciative. Like one of the things PBTA games say a lot is, you know, be a fan of, of other characters, 
That's the jam. Mm-hmm. Like everyone being a fan of everyone else. Like the idea of you saying stars is saying people are seen as encourage. It's also encouraging behavior. You know what I mean? That thing you did was cool. It, it not, you know, all, all that stuff. Wishes is the other way around. Wishes are kind of something you would like to see happen in the future. Now, wishes can be absolutely like, um, just positive stuff as in, I can't wait to see what happens when we trace down the NPC and get our revenge. Which of course just tell that, you know, if a GM was thinking, oh, that NPC was never going to come back. They, the GM now thinks, oh, right, maybe I'll bring them back because the players are into it. You know, hmm. it's, it's clear, but it's also a really very good way to s- give soft negative feedback as in, yeah, I, I'm kind of like, um, you know, we're putting it, yeah, I, there's just too much fight. I, you know, I would love to have like a more conversation based, a more downtime episode when we're not like trying to murder everyone or like, Hey, you know, or, you know, or let's say we're, you, let's say the quest is something like you're trying to assassinate someone. I'm not really, you know, I kind of like the idea of our group getting away from this murder plot a bit. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. it's a way of giving feedback, negative feedback in a safer way. Cause it's always sandwiched around positivity too. It's also a way for GM to give feedback to the players. You know, as in, because the GM, mm. you know, especially in PBOTA, the GM's a player as well. In fact, well, most games, the GM's a player as well, in my opinion. Um, so there's <laughs> yeah. partially that. But I think the problem with the GM is, is, is definitely the mixed message there, in that if you've got a, what the, if you've got something the campaign is going to be about, you get buy-in at the start. You know, if it's kind of like, we're going to do a game about this kind of stuff. Like, this is what I would like to do. Have we got affirmative, exciting consent to do this game? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um mm-hmm. And if the if they haven't properly aligned the players' expectations of what they would want to be doing, that's when a lot of the problems come up. So it's like I know this is too late to do that in that example, but like there is partially that. Um, later on, it's like it's almost asking the GM. Like I mean, a lot of like communication problems are. But actually, hey GM, like with you know this whole kind of this plot here, are we committed to this? You know that kind of thing. You know, like, I think a lot mm. of stuff is just out of game communication done politely. Um, or politely with respect and love, because, you know, you, you're doing this stuff together, especially in PBFTA, where, like, or, or, or Blaze in the Dark, which is a Forge in the Dark system, where the GM's making it all up anyway. You know, it's not like the GM has a plan. They're, they're going to be responsive over what you're doing. When I run Forge in the Dark games, I'll tell you this, it's like, the weirdest thing about Forge in the Dark, even over PBFTA, is I quite often suggest things the players should do in a way I would never do as a GM in another game. Because I have no mm. idea what's going to happen. I could say, like, you know, I would love to see what happens if you try to go through the roof. Because, you know, like, I'm not going to decide, you know, the dice are going to decide what actually happens, <laughs> and then we'll build yeah. off that. So it has a much more writer's room environment. So, like, if your GM is kind of... I mean, obviously, I don't really know about what, what the specific situation is, but... um it just seems I'm weird, trying to keep idea. it general enough that this is useful for people who aren't just me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of why... I don't know. Um, it's definitely complicated between the GM saying like what you what you want, you know, wh- wh- this is very free. It's about what you want to do, and then making it clear it's actually they some they want something specifically, and that that's a weird contrast, which I'm not quite sure what to say because it does imply that the GM's either got a conflict inside them or not really being clear and expressing what they thought they were expressing, which is tricky. I mean, so the answer to most of those things is talking. Uh, I mean, it's definitely one of the things that almost all these games I said the players at the start is like this game works better if your character has powerful desires. Like, um, the, the one, the first Forge game I ever ran, Blades in the Dark, the characters, since they didn't really have very powerful desires, <laughs> they end up burning down all of, um, Crow's, uh, the Crow's foot area just by kind of playing all the gangs against each other without realizing they're trying to keep everyone friendly, but they, everyone else wants to murder each other. <laughs> so eventually oh they just end up like losing all the power structure and then everyone ends up in, the entire area ends up in poverty and everyone murders each other. And they're like, oops, 
<laughs> you know what I mean? They kind of like try to be nice to everyone at utter disaster. And if you actually had something positive as an oh no, I want to become the crime lord of this gang. You know what I mean? That's suddenly something the GM can respond to. So mm. that's one of those things where I'm confused where the GM said it's a lot about player freedom, but still giving you a, such a firm, this is what we're doing. Especially in like Blade in the Dark, where explicitly it's, um, you get to decide what missions you go on. Like, you just yeah. say, nope, not interested. I'm going to go, let's go and rob, uh, let's go rob the Dimmer Sisters instead. <laughs> right. We just right, really hate right. the Dimmer Sisters now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, you know, I think, I think the importance of communication and clarity and what your goals are from a game is like, also like a big thing in Die, right? Hmm. Absolutely. Um, it's a joke I put in the manual of Die. So if only like Sora had been much more clear about the boundaries in the game before they started playing. Oh my uh, God. You need some lines and veils there. Oh, it's, it's, it's brutal. I, um, I'm still definitely very much sitting in my feelings because I took another look at, you know, the end of Die when we spoke to prep for this and I'm like, still very much in my feelings on it. Um, it's a lot. I'm really I, proud of it. Honestly, it's like it was, uh, that we got to do it. Like, um, you know, I, I'm really, really proud of that work. Oh, yeah. And it seems like there's a game community, you know, from it that's an ongoing thing. You know, like this is a real thing. Yeah. Have you have you guys considered doing... I personally, I'm not a big fan of live play performances, except have you guys considered doing a live play performance of Die? Well, have you, like... Um, I'm not sure if I've ever... I've got one online... I did one for a Fort Bubble a few years ago, and it's um, me, Chip, uh, Ed Brubaker, Matt Fraction, Jesus, uh, Margaret Bennett, uh, Emma Vichelli, um, and obviously me. Uh, and there was a short, like two and a half hour game. It's a very quirky scenario. It's set at a Comic Con, and it's basically everyone is playing people who used to make a hit indie comic together, where it failed to become a TV show. Um, I love it. Meta, <laughs> yeah, and it's like. It's two and a half hours and people seem to enjoy it. It's the truest shit you'll ever see, as people have said. It's like, oh yeah, it started as comedy, but this has become a much darker take on uh, the comic book industry. So um, that's definitely out there. I mean, like, we're heading towards the, uh, the crowdfunding for the uh, full retail edition of the Die RPG, which should be like a few months. Like, it's definitely, it'll be in summer. There's a presently a Kickstarter page, which Rook Rowan Deckard, who are a British indie company, who'll be like running it and publishing it. Um, hmm. So I definitely need to stick more videos online of that. Um, I've still got some more playtests to do, um, just cause you always, you're, it's never ended. And it's also kind of touching how many people have played the game, which is nice. Like, um, it's mm -hmm. definitely, it's got to the point where I'm really proud of what it does. And I kind of view it and the comic in the same breath. Um, yeah. So this game I ran for various people before Christmas and I need, I want, I promise to edit it up and then we'll see if we want to put it live. Cause it's an incredibly touching, very powerful, very queer game. Like. We were in tears at different points. It felt incredibly like beautiful at different times and also really moving and funny. Very funny. When you got like the mean girl Gorgons turning up, that kind of stuff. Um, the entire yeah. bit with Taylor, Paul, uh, Taylor Swift um, soundtrack blaring through this city as I'm on the run. Um, but, you know, I want to edit, you know, that just show it because it's the thing about RPGs, you play them in your own way. I mean, I probably said this to you before, but like I always use the band metaphor. Like you form a band mm -hmm. and like most things, when a band ain't working, it's because they fail to communicate what they're trying to do or there's other stuff going on. But, you know, really, like, every game you end up making it yourself anyway. So seeing how people have taken Die, like, some people run it very, um... Some people, like, run it, like, much like Jumanji, the movie. It's, like, really funny and light. It's people in a different world with different powers. And that's a fun way of running it. And I've got people who've run it much more serious than I've ever run it. Like, because mm. I always I always have a level of, like, playfulness as well as the heartbreak. But, like, they go in hard and it's very bleedy 
and it's very emotionally powerful. And it's so weird to have created a work of art, which I think some people are playing better than I am. You know what I mean? And that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And that's very powerful. And like, th- I'm a very aware the the things that game design tickles are very different to what I get as a creator in other fields, whilst also overlapping. Like I kind of view my game designers as kind of like um, criticism. Like my game design is about me explaining how stories work uh, and then allowing you to make your own. That's really, that's a really great way to talk about it. Yeah, thank you. It's fun. Honestly, it's like, it really clarifies your thinking. When you have to write something down in forms of rules and mechanism and ritual, you're like, there's no rule for like fogginess. It's like me saying, okay, this is what this happens here. These are how these characters are, are hurt and how they hurt each other. And this is how you get a climax from it. Um, you know, it's uh, it's really it like, I was, showing, I was chatting to various writers about this who are also dabbling in indie design. It's a private conversation. I don't want to name it, but um yeah, it's interesting. It's just a really, I'd say indie game design is so incredibly vibrant because it's so small. No, like proper indie RPG game design is like poetry. Like there's, um, there's obviously some much bigger games and like some big indie games, but a lot of it's just people doing game poems. These incredibly small little works of art. And, like, and I've re- released like four or five North Shore RPGs now on my HRO page as well as Die. Uh, was it three or four? Something like that. Um, it seemed. Um, it, itchio, yeah. Uh, and it's like, it's really wholesome to just like, oh, I'm releasing a quick game. It's like a couple of pages. It does this thing. Like, I released a game called Amble, which is about people having a conversation on the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you go for a walk together and you use the the things you're seeing on your walk as prompts for a story you're telling each other. And it's very yeah. clearly with a pandemic game about, you mm-hmm. know, trying to share a, share a journey with somebody and enchant it. And there's a lot of that people doing stuff like that, you know, just little creative exercises of people which allows you to see the world a different way and that's what i've always loved about games and you know comics and um, pop music the idea of this um enchantment of the world we find ourselves in that's beautiful it was me just, um, that was me doing a sign-off sort of quote isn't it yeah i know i was gonna be like <laughs> god damn it if i had anything else to ask it wouldn't be good at this point so um, what else hit me okay this is light and i might actually do non-linear editing in order to make this work which is to gonna break me um, because that was such like, honestly, the, f- the fake out ending is great as in that was a big dramatic ending then we do it human style <laughs> no uh okay who hasn't which x-men who hasn't gotten an a, a gala look do you really like needs to have a, a gala look oh no i'm i've got to i'll, I'll probably go to forget a gala look no um well destiny hasn't been bad for one yet has she no no exactly she's you know she's been dead for a long time give the girl a dress <laughs> I was like, I, I saw amazing fan art of it. So I had to remind myself, like, is that real? No, that was all fan art. This hasn't happened yet. So mm. very exciting. This answer might be more of a point of information and answer. So I forget, is, is there a, a narrative reason why the UK doesn't recognize Krakoa or this is still like us thinking about like politics there? Like, did oh. I just not read it? Cause I didn't read every single comic that I would, uh, it would be in a scalibur somewhere. Uh, I've, I'm just forgotten. Okay, I think so um, that's so that's so there, yeah. it is related to that. Then. I mean, okay. it's, it's almost certainly it's, it's basically it's the prickliness of the UK broadly um, in the story that was being set up there, and it's quite nice to have someone like that, you know. Uh, yes. Um, I mean, I, you know, I I should concept. I use that issue too, but I'm not going to mention any more about that. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. I, I was like, I'm like, I would love to see Karen talk about the specificity of the UK not recognizing Krakoa, but I wasn't sure if I'd like literally had had that explained but that doesn't mean there isn't more to say on it anyway so well thank you so much for joining me i i really appreciate the conversations we have um 
tell our listeners the best way to keep up with your work online. Well, the best way to find me is probably my newsletter is the best way, which mm -hmm. is um, Kieran Gillen uh, at buttondown.com. But like, I would, I would really just go to my website, kierangillen.com, and that links to most of my places. Like uh, that aforementioned newsletter, which is like every time I have a comic out, I try to send a newsletter. Uh, I'm on Twitter, um, not very seriously. Like I kind of keep a distance on it now, but like yeah. I make crap jokes quite regularly and retweet stuff. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they're probably the two main places to find me. Um, and also in the, in the shelves of your comic book stores now in Immortal X-Men <laughs> number one, uh, Kevin Gillen, Lucas Vernick. Indeed. Um, really excited to have you working at Marvel while also having these really great projects for us to, to jump in as well. Thank you. As for me, I am Elana underscore Brooklyn, E-L-A-N-A -A underscore Brooklyn on Twitter, where I am a little too much. Um, Graphic Policy Radio, we're going to be continuing to cover conversations with your favorite comics artists and writers, as well as having roundtables around various other superhero adjacent media as it comes to us. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.